This is Our American Stories. And on this day in history in 1981, you guessed it, MTV was launched with the words, quote, Ladies and gentlemen, rock and roll. Spoken by John Leck and played over footage of the first space shuttle launch, Countdown of Columbia, which took place earlier that year, and of the launch of Apollo 11. Those words were immediately followed by the original MTV theme song, a crunching rock tune composed by Jonathan Elias and John Peterson, playing over photos of the Apollo 11 moon landing, with the flag featuring MTV's logo changing various colors, textures, and designs. MTV producers Alan Goodman and Fred Siebert used this public domain footage as a concept. Siebert said they had originally planned to use Neil Armstrong's One Small Step quote, but lawyers said that Armstrong owns his name and likeness, and Armstrong had refused, so the quote was replaced with a beeping sound. The shuttle launch identification ran at the top of every hour in various forms from MTV's first day until it was pulled in early 1986 in the wake of the Challenger disaster. Here's that very first broadcast from the launch of MTV on this day back in 81. Seven, six, five, four. We've gone for main engine start. We have main engine start. gentlemen, rock and roll. This is it. Welcome to MTV Music Television, the world's first 24-hour stereo video music channel. Just moments ago, all of the VJs and the crew here at MTV collectively hit our executive producer, Sue Steinberg, over the head with a bottle of champagne, and behold, a new concept is born. The best of TV combined with the best of radio. Now, starting right now, you'll never look at music the same way again. We'll be right back to introduce the other VJs and the other folks who are going to be with us on MTV. And it's true. It lived up to its words, actually. The first music video was shown, that was shown on MTV was Video Killed the Radio Star, originally only to homes in New Jersey. was shown after the first ever music video aired on MTV. Again, you just heard the song. And right before Pat Benatar's You Better Run video aired. In the beginning was the music. But there was no one around to hear it. As the population grew in numbers, music grew in popularity. Man invented the radio. 
and the phonograph. High fidelity made quite a splash. But it was full stereo sound that made the explosion. Soon television came along and gave us the gift of sight. But it was cable that gave us the freedom of choice. For a while it seemed there was nothing new on the horizon. Announcing the latest achievement in home entertainment. The power of sight. Video. The power of sound. MTV Music Television. The second music video to appear on the launch of MTV was Pat Benatar's You Better Run. Sporadically, the screen would go black when, employee, when an employee at MTV inserted a tape into a VCR. And here's Pat Benadar, Benatar talking about being featured in the launch of MTV. I remember the day that it began, that MTV began. I want my MTV. They gave us the, the airtime and when it was going to actually go on television. And I have to tell you that in the course of a week, our lives changed and it never was the same again, ever. What you trying to do to my soul? There were like five videos, that's all there were. And they played them 24 hours a day. It was nuts. I mean, it was so much fun because you had no history. I said, go away and leave me alone. When I was 26, I was looking to be as outrageous as I... There wasn't anything that was outrageous enough. I love You Better Run because You Better Run was the very first thing. And it's so pure. I remember the director, he put a fan on. And he said, okay, I'm going to turn up the music and I want you to go. And I was like... Yo, I don't go, okay? I don't go. I was, and I was so pissed, so mad. So that's why that whole attitude, so it was perfect. MTV's effect was immediate in areas where the new music video channel was carried. Within two months, record stores in areas where MTV was available were selling music that local radio stations were not even playing. Men at Work, Bow Wow Wow, The Human League, just a few examples. When we come back, MTV matures. And, of course, MTV Unplugged. When we come back, MTV was born on this day in history.
This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. This day in history, in 1981, MTV was born. Again, the original purpose of MTV was to be music television, playing music videos 24 hours a day, seven days a week, guided by on-air personalities known as VJs or video jocks. What a crazy idea. And in the beginning, it's so true. I remember I was in New Jersey and one of the early subscribers. We were lucky we had the right cable package, and we were the test marketers. And there was nothing on. There was nothing. (laughs) And for a long time, by the way, there was nothing on. But one guy changed it all, really, and raised it to its highest art form. And like the guy, don't like the guy. And I don't know why you don't like the guy, but if you don't, You probably have your reasons. Michael Jackson. And you were listening to Thriller coming in. And in December of 1983, MTV debuted Michael Jackson's 14-minute thriller film and music video. The first to combine the world of filmmaking and music together. And this is just a whole new way of thinking about the art form. It was MTV's first worldwide premiere video. Guinness World Records listed it in 2006 as the most successful music video selling over 9 million copies. In 2009, the video was inducted into the National Film Registry by the Library of Congress, the first music video to ever receive this honor for being culturally, historically, or aesthetically significant. Here's Michael Jackson talking about the creation of this music video. I remember my original approach was, how do you make zombies and monsters dance without it being comical so i said we have to do just the right kind of movement so it doesn't become something that you laugh at but it just has to be you know take it to another level so i got in a room with michael peters and he and i together kind of imagine uh how these zombies should move by making faces in the mirror and i used to come to rehearsal sometime with monster makeup on and and I love doing that. So uh, he and I collaborated, and we both choreographed uh, the piece. And I thought I should start, you know, like that kind of thing. Then go into this kind of jazzy step, you know. Kind of gruesome things like that, you know. Not too, too much ballet or whatever. <laughs> no, not too much val- ballet, but its own kind of aesthetic. He developed it. Almost MTV dancing. July 13th, 1985, MTV, MTV broadcast Live Aid in the United States, helping to fundraise and raise awareness of famine in Ethiopia. Here's guitarist for Dire Straits, Jack Sonny, talking about playing Live Aid from an interview he did with us in the studio a few months back. Live Aid, Wembley Stadium, fully packed, you know, the television things going on. It, it was Sting, we're waiting behind stage to go on, and Sting comes up behind me and, and nudges me, and he's going to come out and sing sing his parts with us and I was the one who would who would lead those parts and sort of guide people and and he he's he's looking at me and he's going I can't believe how many people out there are you nervous (laughs) and I'm looking at him thinking I said no man honestly (laughs) I said I've waited my entire life for this this is you know this is it and the whole world was watching it live and that hadn't happened before and MTV allowed it on July 26, 1986, Peter Gabriel had scored his first number one hit with Sledgehammer. The song was everywhere in the summer of 86, but especially on MTV. In fact, Sledgehammer was the most played music video on MTV of all time. Here's the video's director, Stephen Johnson, talking about how the entire video was created in about a week. We decided up front that uh, we were going to use animation, and I 
also had sort of a technical trick up my sleeve for doing a, a lip sync stop motion, uh, which is what almost every shot in Sledgehammer is. Uh, as it ended up, uh, the actual shooting uh, took less than a week and had a team of seven animators working and not around the clock. It was rather normal days. So we sh shot it in uh, five or six days and uh, I was able to edit it in two days flat. And there wasn't just rock and roll, folks. There was rap. And in August of 1988, MTV premiered Yo! MTV Raps, a weekly rap music show which featured Fab Five with Dr. Dre and Ed Lover as hosts. The show opens with DJ Jazzy Jeff, a.k.a. Will Smith. With the intro. Right, go. Let's do this, dude. I'm DJ Jazzy Jeff. Hey, yo, I'm the prince. And I'm ready, Rock C. Hold up, what's this? We want to let everybody know where it's at. It's right here. Yo, MTV Raps. Yo. Yo. Hold it now. Yo. Yes, yes. Yo, what's up? I'm Jam Master J, this is Run DMC, and welcome to Yo! MTV Rap Show! And it wasn't just rap, there was programming. In 1993, MTV debuted Beavis and Butthead, an original animated <laughs> yeah. series starring two suburban misfits. Greg, this is just his favorite show. Created by Mike Judge, the show was the first spinoff from MTV Awards winning animated variety series Liquid Television. Here's a clip from the very first episode of Beavis and Butthead called Frog Baseball. Dude, a frog. Frog Baseball! Get him! Between shows like Beavis and Butthead, Real World, Road Rules, Jackass, MTV Cribs, and The Osbournes, MTV would gradually stop playing music videos altogether. The show Portlandia on IFC recently had a sketch where the main characters Fred and Carrie rally former MTV staff to take back MTV, only to find the network had been taken over by tweens when they came face-to-face -face with the company's bratty 12-year-old CEO. My MTV. Wait, what? We're here to take over. What? What? Take back MTV. Take back the youth-oriented channel from the youth. Have you been watching your own channel? It's garbage. I don't even know what it is. It's a mess. Music is dead. Cable TV has 500 more channels since you were last watching. But music is dead because you killed it. You're killing it. I don't know who raised you or how you got here, but that's not nice. The tweens have taken control. Yeah, but we're taking control. No. Yes. We're in your office. We invaded your space. Now what? You're going to call security? It's not going to work. It's our time again. We used to watch shows like 120 Minutes to see cool bands. Yeah, like Sonic Youth. Here's the first thing. Sonic Youth, the people are like 50 years old. But they're musicians. They're, 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 they're still relevant. <laughs> Dumb. They are? Kim Gordon and Thurston Moore are divorced. And you're just the orphans left behind. I suggest that you and your little friend turn right around and get out of my office. Yeah? 
MTV launched MTV Unplugged, though, and this is what separates it, I think, from everything in 1989. And one of the most memorable unplugs was Nirvana's Unplugged, where people got to see and hear the real talent behind this band. Here, some MTV producers recall the night that Nirvana recorded and performed their first and only Unplugged album. It was quiet. You could hear a pin drop. I mean, it was the most amazing, amazing setting. At the same time, there was this intensity and, and uh, sort of electricity in the room. Good evening. There was a feeling in the air in that room. The room was packed. You know, we had, we had more people than we could fit. The fire marshal almost shut us down. You could really feel the buzz, though, in the room. Like, I think people really knew that they were seeing something special and unique and that it was probably a once-in-a-lifetime shot. You know, it was on MTV itself back when they were not only playing lots of music and originating great music like the Unplugged series, but you also heard music news and entertainment news. Way before there was TMZ, there was MTV. And Kurt Loder actually made the national and international announcement of Cobain's death. And it was just one of those days you can't forget. And there were so many other great acts that MTV caught unplugged. Bennett, and that's Tony. Bruce Springsteen, Nine Inch Nails, R.E.M., and of course, Page and Plant. But for me, the best was seeing Eric Clapton the guitar god stripped of his electric guitar, doing some of his greatest compositions, unplugged. Let's take a listen. See if you can spot this one. This is Our American Stories. On this day in history, MTV was born. And this is Our American Stories, and we tell great stories about everything here, love and death, music, cars, the American dream, history, our This Day in History segments, we're over 100 now, and everything from Will Chamberlain's 100-point game to the life story of Buzz Aldrin, which we did on the day of his birth, and actually the particular part of Buzz Aldrin's life where, as he put it, things got out of control, and that was when he came back from the moon, What Next?, and it was a story of great rehabilitation, a life that spiraled out and then in the end spiraled out of control only to come back under control. A terrific story. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org to hear all of our This Day in Histories. Today we're doing a policy story because periodically we like to tell the story of individual American citizens up against their own government, where their enemy is actually their own government and for no darn good reason. And today... Well, the story is one that we love to talk about when it relates to our Constitution, and particularly when we can, the Fourth Amendment. And, and that states that government cannot seize your property without probable cause and due process. And we're learning that's happening a lot more in this country. And it's not always working out the way citizens thought it should who love the Constitution. Today we're going to the Red River, which is the border between Texas and Oklahoma, where the BLM and that's the Bureau of Land Management, 
He's making a land grab of unprecedented size and scale. Joining us to tell this story is Jimmy Smith, who's a landowner. And also joining us in the next segment will be Rob Henneke of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. But before we ever get into policy, we like to tell the personal stories first. Jimmy, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. You bet. Jimmy, tell us a bit about yourself and your family, where you grew up, what you do for a living before we get into this, the meat of this story. Okay. Um, I'll give you a little brief background. My name is Jimmy Smith. I'm 54 years old. I'm married to a wonderful lady that I love and cherish. Her name is Irene. Together we have six wonderful daughters, seven grandsons, four granddaughters. Um, I'm a carpenter by trade or a concrete man also. And... Uh, like I said, I live in Burbank, Texas, along the Red River, just east of the, or just west of the I-44 bridge. And uh, so, so this property in question uh, that we're going to be talking about, and the legal struggles that you're facing with your own government, uh, talk about this stretch of land. How long have you owned the property, and when did you buy it? Why did you buy it? Okay, um, pretty much all my life, I've been a river rat and a canoe person really enjoy it. And so uh, 10 years ago in September 2006, me and my wife got the opportunity of a lifetime to buy a, a farm along the Red River. And it just happens to be 150 acres of some of the prettiest part of Texas, as far as I'm concerned. Um, we also have a, a creek that runs through our property called Wild Horse Creek. So as a Texan, I'm very lucky because I have the Red River and a creek also with a shortage of water like we have um, our house sets up on top of a bluff above the Red River and gives us a great view from our bedroom, looking out across the valley uh, with the uh, cottonwoods and the winding river. It's very peaceful and comforting. It sounds like paradise to me, Jimmy. i got to come over. You'll have a hard time getting rid of me and my wife. Uh, it sounds just well, beautiful. It, it is. Uh, with the bluff tracking above the river, you can get that that awe of looking down upon everything and, and seeing the grand gesture of it all. Well, that's a, it's a fantastic sight that I'm picturing just in my head, Jimmy. Tell us a bit about how you're living on that land and el- what else you're doing with that acreage. What were your plans with that acreage? What are you doing with it right now? Well, as of right now, uh, I'm a farmer. I do a little bit of a, a raised coastal hay, some hay graze, or a little bit of wheat. And uh, like all farmers, I've been hurt by the drought the past few years, but in the past past year we've had ample rain, so things are rebounding in a better way. Um, not having any cows right now, the drought kind of put a real damper upon the cow situation, and uh, with the weather coming back and the rains, uh, cows would be a good good thing, but with this BLM thing, it kind of hampers me from investing the money uh, with the chance of losing uh, about two-thirds of my property to the BLM. Well, tell me what what uh, what happened to you with the BLM? Take us through and take the listeners through how you came into contact with them and what you were what you're up against. Well, like I said, we bought property in 2006, and we did some things through the years. Uh, and uh, in 2008, I got a knock on the door, and it was a surveyor for the BLM, and he wanted to get access to the river. And his, his story was that he wanted to survey for townships and for the casinos across the river uh, to set a, a northern boundary along the river to help 
the casinos are eventually growing to townships. And so I, I freely obliged and, and tried to work with him and everything and, and never had no problem. He was in and out of my property probably for 45 days altogether, 60 days maybe, accessed and went up and down and put markers out across the property and things like that. Mm-hmm. At the time, I didn't know what they meant or really uh, didn't understand them. Yep. And uh, in 2014, some six years later, uh, we have a, a resource planning, you know, meeting that the BLM had, and that's when I found out what the markers really meant. And what did they mean, Jimmy? What did you find out they meant? Well, it, it's apparently it's something to do with their gradient boundary of, of what they consider to be the boundary. And so, in the end, uh, they're claiming in in. It sounds to me that your land isn't your land, it's their land? Well, I know that I had my title research done, just like every homeowner in Texas does, but banks aren't going to loan you money. And as far as I know, and as far as I'm still concerned, my land is my land. And uh, apparently the BLM has a different opinion. And their opinion is, well, how much of their land do they think is theirs, of yours? Uh, out of my 150, I could lose about 100 to 110 acres. That's just got to look as it is. It sounds like, you know, and, and this every farmer knows this story, uh, as so many people in cyclical businesses know. Um, there are good times and there are tough times. And of course, the BLM is doing this at a time that you can least afford to really fight them, it sounds like. And yet, thank goodness, as we're going to find out uh, in a bit, you've got some, you've got some help. But what did that what did that make you feel when you found this out, Jimmy? Uh, well, I was very upset and angry. Uh, I've lost a lot of sleep, needless to say. It has hampered me from, like, say, from like purchasing cows with the rebound of the weather and everything. The market's good. Um, there's a lot of things that I don't do because of the financial burden. I'm not improving fences that I should be improving. Uh, basically, I'm on hold. And I'm still making my payments to the bank. I still pay my taxes on time. If I didn't pay them, you know, I'd be foreclosed on. But as it is, I'm, I wouldn't, in a way, I'm kind of being held hostage on my own property. Yeah, you're being held hostage by the federal government, and you're being held hostage by something that we hear a lot about from small business owners as it relates to government regula- regulations and the regulatory state. And this is just one arm of a large federal bureaucracy. And that thing that so many business people are held hostage by, Jimmy, and you are too, is uncertainty. Talk yeah, about that. Yeah, it is. It's, a, it's an uncertainty like no other. Me and my wife... Um, on a daily basis, and when I say daily basis, I do mean almost every single day, someone asks us how things are going. And uh, luckily, like you said, with the foundation, I, I do have an answer that things are moving along with the foundation. Uh, before the foundation came into our uh, situation, I, I just had to shrug my shoulders and tell them I can only tell you what I can find out through the BLM's website and through public meetings, which don't really give you no answers. And we just, uh, there's a certain uncertainty every day of our life when we're doing things. Yep, as it is, and this just makes it so much worse. We're talking to Jimmy Smith, a landowner in Texas, and we're calling this the land grab along the Red River. And the Bureau of Land Management is up to no good. And Robert Henneke of the Texas Public Policy Foundation 
the White Knight, this organization helping people in need, joins us next to talk about what he's doing to help Jimmy and others like him. More after these messages. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. is our American stories. The Bureau Land of Land Management's land grab along the Red River. That's the story this half hour. First part of this half hour, we heard from Jimmy Smith, a landowner. A guy with a dream. He and his bride, his love of his life. They get a little bit of land, 150 acres. Boy, the land's got everything. It's got a bluff and a house on it. It's got a river. And a guy who's a self-proclaimed river rat. And he also has a creek. He's got it made, except for one thing. Somebody else has set sight on his land, and it's the Bureau of Labor Land Management. And joining us now to talk about the legal dimensions of this is Rob Henneke, and we love talking to, to him and to the folks at the Texas Public Policy Foundation. Rob, thanks for joining us. Lee, hello again. So, Rob, you get this call. Uh, is this a story you'd heard before? Talk about that. I remember the story being in the news. Uh, this is a fight that uh, Jimmy and, and our other clients have been battling the Bureau of Land Management since 2009. And uh, if you remember about two and a half, three years ago, it received some national media attention as the Bureau of Land Management began to move forward to actually uh, take steps to, to take over our client's property. So I remembered it from the news and you know, really, you had hoped that the issue had resolved itself, but um, our litigation center, the Center for the American Future, here last fall, became aware that this fight was still going on along the Red River, and uh, just a privilege of ours to be able to help step into the breach and stand up for our clients' property rights. And and this this area of land, this you know, we're talking about land that goes back and could be traced back to the Louisiana Purchase. But in the end, I mean, we have markers on land. I mean, we're property owners. Where, where does the federal government come in saying what's rightfully theirs when this land has been properly surveyed? What's their claim, Rob? Well, their claim is because we're the federal government and we say so. But I is, mean, it an, is it an eminent domain claim? Is it, is it just, I mean, I understand eminent domain and it's, it's controversial. There was a Supreme Court ruling that, my goodness, all kinds of folks who believe in property rights were horrified at. And that was a conservative court, actually, that, that ruled 5-4 in favor of the federal government using land to promote all kinds of crazy ideas and not just a railroad uh, but like a, a development of a private company. And I think that was Pfizer up in the Kilo case. But what's, what's their legal theory for taking this land, Rob? Well, this is not eminent domain. In fact, it's, I would say it's worse because, at least in eminent domain, the Constitution entitles you to just compensation from the government. In this situation, the federal government is coming in and just declaring that 
you know, nearly all of Mr. Smith's property and, and up to 90,000 acres inside of Texas along the Red River belongs to the federal government as part of their managed territory in Oklahoma. Here's how it works. Here's what's happened is you have to see it to believe it, but where Mr. Smith lives is one of the most beautiful parts of Texas. And the geology of the Red River is that because the riverbank is so soft that this riverbank is constantly moving due to erosion and accretion. And this was recognized by the Supreme Court back in the 1920s when the Supreme Court of the United States determined that the boundary between Texas and Oklahoma was what they called the gradient boundary, which is basically the, the midpoint between the water and the top of the riverbank. And the court recognized that that boundary followed the meandering of the river. Right. Everyone has recognized if you live along the Red River, some days your your riverbank's going to erode away. Some, yep. some years it's going to build up. That's right. Well, since 1920s, because of how dynamic this area is, the Red River has, in fact, uh, eroded in some places up to two miles n- north from where it was 90 years ago. And what has happened is you have the federal government has come in, and despite the clear language of the U.S. Supreme Court opinion in Oklahoma v. Texas, they are saying, well, we're now claiming our boundary goes to where the river was. Well, Rob, that's just absolutely confounding. And we keep coming up against a term called clouded title. Um, and talk about what that means as it relates to this case. I think I know, and I think our audience might, but clear that up for us. You're the expert. Well, clouded title is where another party, in this case the Bureau of Land Management, takes an action that puts your ownership of your land into question. And in doing so, when you cloud someone's title, then just as is the situation here, now you have difficulty when it comes to being able to lease your land or fence your land or refinance your land or sell your land uh, because for anyone that you want to contract with, they're going to have a question as to whether you own your land or not. And so in some areas here with the Bureau of Land Management, by putting survey markers in the ground on Mr. Smith's property, they're physically staking a claim saying the federal government owns this. And if Mr. Smith wants to try to do something with his land that he's paid for, that he's worked for his entire life, now he's got that cloud uh, which puts into question the legitimacy of his ownership. And that's got to, in the end, Rob, affect the fundamental value of this land uh, in the end, doesn't it? Sure. I mean, because from a... A third party that might want to contract with, with Mr. Smith for, for whatever reason, you know, they don't know if Mr. Smith owns what his recorded deed at the courthouse says that he owns. And so in some ways it makes the property, from Mr. Smith's perspective, as far as being able to, to, to make full and fair use of, of uh, the value of his land, uh, questionable in, in value. So, Rob, what are you doing right now at the Texas Public Policy Foundation 
uh, to right this or remedy this wrong? Well, I lead the Foundation's Litigation Center called the Center for the American Future. And our litigation center exists to judicially oppose government overreach and abuse in areas like property rights, environmental, and individual autonomy. We exist to stand up for individuals like Jimmy, like our clients who are threatened with oppressive government action, our clients who have not done anything wrong themselves and yet find themselves in jeopardy. And so we are the lawyers for Mr. Smith and the rest of our clients, and we have filed a lawsuit to stop the Bureau of Land Management from coming down into Texas and seizing this private property along this 116-mile stretch of the Red River. Well, and it's such important work you guys do, and of course, it's pro bono. You guys don't charge for this work, I assume. We are uh, we're a nonprofit organization at the foundation, and so uh, we're supported by uh, generous donors and, and individuals that support our mission that allows us to be able to do this type of litigation in uh, uh, representing uh, Mr. Smith and, and other citizens that are fighting the federal government. Well, we're so glad you exist because there are plenty of groups defending religious liberty but there need to be more groups out there like yours, and yours does such a great job protecting, I think, the most important right there is in the Constitution. I think it's perhaps even more important than religious liberty, and that's the property right. Without the property right, we're simply not a country. And poof, there goes religious liberty, and there go all the other liberties. I think property right that important. I think it's probably why you guys have emphasized this space. By the way, Rob, it also brings all kinds of people, left of center, right of center, together, because my goodness, no one wants their property taken without due process. No, that's exactly right. We've, we've put up a website with a lot more information about this case. It's redriverpropertyrights.com, and it tells the entire story. And you're exactly right. You know, what, other, what kind of liberties can you have if you can't have the ability to be safe and secure in your home and on your property? And, you know, we have guarantees under the Constitution, guarantees of due process, guarantees of, of liberty. And that's what I'm fighting for on behalf of Mr. Smith and our clients through our work here at the, the Center for the American Future. Well, we appreciate that work. And again, that's the Center for the American Future, and it's the Texas Public Policy Foundation. We urge you to give to this organization. It's an important one and does God's work. And, and Jimmy, you have uh, 45 seconds. You've got the ear of the future president or the future head of this Bureau of Land Management. What would your appeal be? That we as landowners have, like you said, we've gone through the due process of doing title search and title claim, and, and we are not ta- we're not taking something that nobody told us wasn't ours to take. We're, we, we've simply bought land that, we bought openly and with clear title. And it is wrong that if, if the government thinks it's their, their land, then they probably should have stepped up 140 years ago and corrected the problem instead of dumping it on me and the other landowners. Well, Jimmy, that's well said. And again, we're talking to Jimmy Smith, a landowner, Rob Henneke of the Texas Public Policy Foundation. And we call this the Bureau of Land Management's Land Grab along the Red River in Texas. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. To catch all of our work, go to ouramericannetwork.org. Thanks, both of you, for joining us.
is Our American Stories, and on this day, we're celebrating not just our country, but we're also celebrating those who've chosen to come to America in spite of political and geographic barriers. We're going to hear a story from Faith, and we've been sending her to the Villages, Florida, for some time now, a retirement community with over 150,000 residents, residents from every type of background. On her most recent trip, she talked to a woman named Sylvia. Sylvia starts out talking about why she originally didn't want to move to the villages. My name is Sylvia Lawrence. I used to be Sylvia Galova. How did you end up here? My husband, uh, he was on a church choir, and somebody on a church choir was talking about the villages. Villages, oh, you know, this and that. And uh, my husband described that to me, and I said, oh, but I don't like any kind of rules. I don't know if I would like that. You know, it seems it's too rigid. I hate dogmas. I can't stand that. Yes, I'm always opposed to any rules. Sylvia is very different from most of the other villagers I've talked to since I've been there. You may have noticed her thick accent. But one of the important things she mentioned was not liking rules. Why is that? Sylvia escaped from communist Czechoslovakia after the Soviets had invaded her country in 1968. But the initial communist invasion started when she was very young. In 53, the communists absolutely confiscated everything. Uh, my, all, my family owned um, lots of properties, restaurants, uh, stores, uh, cars. I remember as a four-year-old, five-year-old, I don't remember now exactly, uh, watching the commissars coming uh, and taking our cars. My grandma had this huge black car. She had a chauffeur because she didn't know how to drive. Uh, then my father had this sports car, <laughs> the English sports car, and my mother had just a plain, uh, you know, middle-sized car. But the commissars came and took all three cars. And I remember as a child watching from the window and saying, hmm, I wonder where they are taking that. <laughs> but uh, I remember as a child the commissars would come at 3, 4 o'clock in the morning uh, and looking for stuff, uh, you know, jewelry. Uh, pictures, uh, fur coats, and they would just confiscate that. It didn't mean much to me then, but, and my grandma used to say, uh, she lived with us, ah, it's just stuff. I'll make more money and buy you stuff. (laughs) I grew up uh, and went to school. I was ostracized because I was from the rich family. They, and the teachers would say to me, you are no good, and I, I remember thinking, why, what did I do? And I couldn't comprehend that I'm not good because I, I, I am from a former rich family. But again, my grandma always stood by me and she said to me, whatever you have in your head, the communists cannot take away from you. Be the best you can be, reach for the stars. And that's what I did. I was, I, I, hard, I worked very, very, very hard in school. And uh, I did well. Um, my grandma was a very big influence on me. And she's been dead for 43 years. But there is not one day that I don't think about her. Then things began to change. Seemingly for the better. Then around 
66, 67, the situations became a little bit better. We used to have a little bit of a freedom. For example, freedom of press and freedom of expression. And it was all thanks to the president who was Dubček, D-U-B-C-E-K. And he didn't want us to stop being a communist country. All he really wanted, a little bit of freedom. But in August 21, uh, 1968, I woke up at 4 o'clock in the morning and the news was, don't panic, stay indoors, the Soviet invaded your country. We were in total disbelief because we did not believe we did anything wrong. All we were asking was for a little bit of freedom. But the Soviets, our Soviet army came and invaded Czechoslovakia. They also invaded Poland. How old were you? Uh, I was 18. So Sylvia and her mother, knowing and experiencing the evils of communism, decided to plan their escape, which was no easy task. That was it for me because I felt there is no future for me anymore. You know how 18-year-old, we are sort of, at that time, I think I was selfish. I only thought about myself and I just was very forceful. I said, I'm going to leave, I'm going to escape. And at that time, because of the Soviet army and you know, nobody really was guarding the borders and nobody really knew what they were doing. However, the old rule was that before you can leave Czechoslovakia, you need a permission from the Minister of Interior um, Affairs. And then you needed a visa to go to country of your choice. So, okay, we, my mother and I went to the Minister of Internal Affairs and stood in line with our passports. And all of a sudden, somebody shouting, the Soviets are coming, the soldiers are going to be here. If they f- catch you with your passport, they are going to take you and maybe you'll end up a couple days in jail. My mother said, let's don't run outside, let's go and run and hide in the building. So <laughs> we went uh, in a cellar and uh, I spent a whole night just huddling in a cellar with my mother. Uh, luckily, I was <laughs> young and very skinny, so in the morning we still didn't want to use the front door to exit because they were going to ask us, you know, what were you doing here this early in the morning? So there was a tiny little window in the cellar room, so I crawled through it, and my mother was always tiny, so she, she fitted uh, through the window too, and we just pretended like, you know, we are on a stroll here. So we were not stopped, and we kept our passports. And when we come back, we're going to hear more of Sylvia and her mom's escape from communist Czechoslovakia. More after these messages, Faith's visit to the villages, and Sylvia and her story, again here on Our American Stories.
is Our American Stories, and we continue with Sylvia's story. In the last segment, we learned about her, her hatred of rules and where it came from. We learned that quickly. And how Czechoslovakia, notice how they vilified the wealthy first. Because then the rest of the folks could hate the wealthy. But then it was the upper middle class, then it was the middle class. And pretty soon, the communists had confiscated everything. So when you hear the 1% getting vilified, just remember what's really going on. But let's go back to the story and to Sylvia's story and faith at the villages. I cannot imagine how scary that must have been, but they were determined to still flee from the country. However, her grandmother was not fit to take the trip. So after the night of staying in the cellar, Sylvia and her grandmother had an important conversation. We came home, and at that time we were living in an apartment that had a very long, dark hallway. And my grandma was on one side, and, you know, as an 18-year-old, I'm saying, Grandma, I'm leaving. I'm leaving. I cannot live here anymore. And my grandma turned around and said, yes, that's a good decision. And I, I said, why isn't she saying something? Why isn't she saying, don't go? Or, you know, and I think she was crying because she wanted me to go. And that was the hardest, hardest happening to me. And your grandmother, she, you said she was crying. Was that because she knew you needed to go? I think she, she felt it's better for me if I leave. But of course, she was the one who raised me because my mother worked at the university. And like I said, my father was architect, always working somewhere else. Uh, so I was raised by my grandma, and we were extremely, extremely close. But I think she felt for me to have a better life is to let me go. And I never saw her again. I think she was just totally unselfish, because I think if I would have known that she was crying and that she didn't want me to leave, perhaps I wouldn't have left. But she... She hid that from me because she wanted me to go. She wanted me to have a better life. And the communist regime actually fell but 19 years later. So, you know, I was 18 when I left, but to living under the communism for 19 more years, I don't think that was acceptable for her or for me. What are other things that you remember your grandmother telling you? (laughs) She always told me to make friends with smarter people than I am (laughs) because you can always learn from them. My grandma was an extremely strong woman who would never let herself be defeated. You know, no matter what came, what the communists dealt, you know, they took her two stores, her two beautiful restaurants, her apartment building complex that she had. They took our home where I was raised, and it never faced her. She said, that's okay, I'll, I'll make more money and we'll, we'll have something else. 
the example she gave me was the one and I'm still living by it because she was an outstanding woman and I'm really happy that I had somebody like that in my life. Too bad my sons never met her but I've been telling them the stories about her so <laughs> I hope something stuck. She always said, you see the stars there? Reach for them. And when I, you know, she always asked me, what do you want to be? You know, what do you want to study? And she always said, it doesn't matter. Whatever you study, it will be okay. She would never say, you cannot be a doctor or you cannot, um, you know, do this. She would say, oh, go get the stars. You know, they can take your jewelry, you know, but they cannot take whatever you have in your, you know, your brain. They cannot take that. So basically she was telling me, to learn every day of your life, uh, life, just learn, learn, learn. So after saying goodbye to her grandmother, Sylvia and her mother took their chances for a better life and headed toward the border, not knowing what would happen to them. So we left, my mother and I left, and uh, to this day, I do, and we went by train, and to this day, I don't know how it happened because the Soviet soldiers came and questioned everybody. And I spoke Russian because everybody had to, in schools you had to uh, take Russian as a second language. But to this day, I don't know what I was saying to that soldier, but he let us go. So I don't know what happened, but we end up in Vienna, Austria, we had absolutely no money. We had absolutely nothing to where to stay or how to feed ourselves. <laughs> so um, we went to a convent. We also spoke German because that was my third language that I had to take. And they said, okay, you can stay with us, but you have to work for your uh, food. And <laughs> it was really funny because I was, all my young adult life, I was such a spoiled <laughs> child. I never, I never cooked, I never did dishes, I never cleaned floors or washed clothes. And all of a sudden, <laughs> I'm working, <laughs> you know, cleaning floors for my food. <laughs> but I did it, you know, because uh, I always felt you have to do what you have to do. And so we stayed uh, in a convent for eight and a half months, uh, working for our lodging and for our food. And the nuns were very, very kind to us. Of course, the work was hard, but the food was good. <laughs> the nine months in Austria were very, very difficult, very difficult. And it not even the food or the lodging or whatever it was the what will happen tomorrow not knowing was was really really difficult you know I was 18 but my mother was 48 and it was extremely difficult for her because she left you know her her job at the university her friends and um, she had a harder time learning the foreign language right she was older she was older so it was very difficult for her. So not only my grandma sacrificed herself, but also my mother. Of course, they could not stay at the convent forever. So they first attempted to get into the U.S. After eight and a half months, I 
uh, we were trying to emigrate to U.S., but the U.S. did not recognize us for political asylum. So uh, they said, well, you have to go to a, like something like a work camp and wait there. So my mother said, I'm not going to do that with an 18-year-old girl. So at that time, the Canada opened the borders, and they would work. They were welcoming immigrants. Uh, so uh, that's what we did. I we ended up in Montreal, Canada, and at that time, the Montreal was a little bit separatist. Uh, however, uh, I didn't speak English and I didn't speak French at that time. They said the immigration said to us, if you start taking French lessons, we are going to pay you $25 a week. My goodness gracious, $25 a week to me was like million dollars. <laughs> so I gladly said, oh yeah, I will learn French, no problem. So all we had to do is just show up downtown. They had buses for us. They took us to school where we had French speakers teaching us I spent four and a half months every day learning French. So after the four and a half months, I was quite fluent. <laughs> so now she lived in Canada and got a very special job. She was able to become a tour guide for an expo called Man and His World, giving VIP tours, even giving tours for the Czechoslovakian section. But because she had fled the country illegally, she needed a bodyguard just in case someone wanted to take her back to the country. And when we come back, the rest of the story, the rest of Sylvia's story, and I had to fight back tears listening to her account of Grandma just holding it back and sending her little girl off. What an act of love. And just a beautiful, beautiful story. And by the way, a little history lesson for those of us who don't know the ravages of communism and bad government. More of Sylvia's story, Faith's story at the villages after these messages. This is Our American Stories, and Sylvia and her mother had arrived in Canada, and they'd begun their new lives, but how is it that she got into the United States? Let's return to the story. In the fall and spring, she went to school and worked at Man in His World during the summer, which is where she so happened to meet her man. One day, after a really hard day, I had lots of VIP tours, I was sitting at the end of the pavilion minding the guest book. You know, that was like, you can relax now. All of a sudden, I see this tall, very, very, very handsome guy staring at me. And, you know, I, I was used to it. You know, guy, I had uniform and, you know, and uh, so this guy comes 
and start speaking English. Uh, I said, I don't understand English. So he starts communicating with his hands and he said he would like my address because he wants to send me a postcard from Pittsburgh. So I did that. Three months later he came back. I saw him one more time, so three times altogether, and I married him. I didn't speak English and he didn't speak French. So I, I'm still married to him 46 years later and three sons. Now I speak English. <laughs> so, but we are, we are together, we are happy, and uh, that's how I ended up in America. And I absolutely love America. I think America is the best country ever. I'm very, very grateful that I, I had such an opportunity from a little Slovak country <laughs> to come here and enjoy uh, everything America has to offer. I made sure that three of my sons, that my sons, three of them, we travel extensively because I wanted them to know different cultures and different people. And, but every time we would come back to U.S., I would tell him, get on your knees and thank God that you were born in this country. So you married someone after seeing them three times? Yes. Were I'm not really speaking. Were you scared? Of course. Of course. Why'd but you do it? The, the hardest part was already done. The hardest part was, was leaving the country. I thought after that I can do anything. You were married and you didn't know English. Right. I mean, what was that like? That was funny because we were still having arguments. <laughs> My husband, <laughs> he would force me into speaking English. He would give me these uh, jobs, like call the water company <laughs> and ask them about how many gallons do we use uh, <laughs> day or something like that and I would sit by the phone with a stomach ache but I would still do it and it wasn't easy he would take me to parties and I I, I just didn't know how to speak to people uh, the people would say oh you are she must be really stupid because she's sitting in a corner but it was because I didn't speak the language you know that's a human nature if they don't understand something maybe you don't really find out what's going on. Yeah, that's true. It's easier that way. Experiencing what she had, Sylvia wanted to make sure her sons understood what it means to live in America. She made many sacrifices when she fled. And although we know that she left her grandmother back home, she also left her father. My father, uh, my father was an architect but his heart was broken because he was an artist also. And he wanted to build colorful buildings with lots of windows. And of course that was not permitted in, in the communist regime. So I never really knew him as well uh, because he was always gone as a punishment. I, I didn't see him when I was leaving, so I didn't say goodbye to him. And uh, the communication between my grandma and my father was very sketchy, very seldom because we were afraid that if they get letters from U U.S. or Canada, they will be punished. But then I found out that he was 
seriously ill with cancer. So I called the hospital and I explained the situation that I'm his daughter and I am living in the U.S. And I asked the doctor who was uh, taking care of my father if he is okay with me talking to him because he could, the doctor could be punished by allowing somebody from U.S. talking to his patient. But he said, no, I will. I will let your father talk to you. Uh, but my father was, I guess, in so much pain and not really, he didn't understand what was going on because I said, hello, father, this is your daughter. And he said, I have no daughter. And that was the last I heard from him. He died two weeks later. So, uh, you know, life is not, not easy, but that's the only life we have, so we have to make the best out of everything that happens to us. He didn't even remember her. Although she left for a much better life, and indeed got one, that did not mean that leaving was easy. So, what exactly are Sylvia's thoughts towards those who may not appreciate the U.S. the way that she does? You see, the, the problem with... Uh, America, they, they're afraid of, some people are afraid to fail. And why? You, sh- you could fail. It, it, if you learn something from your mistakes or from, from your failure, that's okay. Just pick up and start again. And I think everybody here is just, you know, they, they don't want to work hard sometimes. They just want a good job, a lot of money. Well, it doesn't work like that. You have to work hard. You cannot have money if you don't do anything for it. Well, because for you, failure would have been basically, you know, being caught as you were trying to escape. The worst thing already happened to me. So what else can happen, you know? Sylvia has had an interesting life, to say the least. And now she has settled down in the villages, Florida. So what exactly does she do these days? I realized that basically they give you all sorts of opportunities to do this or that, or if you don't want to, that's okay too. And I like that because I love dancing. Again, going back to my grandma, she believed that females must be very graceful. So I started with ballet at age three. I was dancing all my life. So that, that is totally amazing that right now I'm dancing my son thinks I'm really crazy by doing this, but that's okay. I'm dancing until I, I cannot. <laughs> it always came back to her grandmother, the person who told her to reach for the stars, no matter the circumstance. Thank you, Sylvia. I know this was an emotional story to share. This is Faith Garcia from Our American Stories reporting to you from The Villages, Florida. And great job, as always, Faith. And, you know, you really did get to meet the grandmother. I mean, the grandmother ends up being the star of this piece. I mean, Sylvia is fabulous, but the grandmother, be still my heart. And, by the way, the sons that she said never got to meet her grandma, their grandmother. Oh, they, the great-grandmother. Oh, they did. They did in countless and endless stories about their great-grandmother and her grandmother. This is Lee Habib, Sylvia's story, Faith's story, the two of them coming together, total strangers, to learn a little about each other and about the world. 
This is Our American Stories. This is Our American Stories, and you're listening to Jared Reynolds singing a song. Well, if you've been a church, into a church of any kind, ever, Christian or not, it's a song you've heard. And we love to tell the stories of songs here on Our American Stories, every kind. Light My Fire by The Doors, we did. Another Brick in the Wall by Pink Floyd. There Goes My Life by Kenny Chesney. What a story that is. And Gimme Shelter, It Doesn't Get Better, how that song was made, how it was recorded. You hear from Keith Richards, Mick Jagger, the whole band, and a singer who does some remarkable background work. A great story. And the story of this song, I Surrender All, boy, is it good. As a public high school art teacher in Sharon, Pennsylvania, Judson Wheeler Van Deventer found himself at a crossroads in 1891. He was an active member of his Methodist Episcopalian church, and his friends encouraged him to enter ministry, but he resisted. He felt that his arm's-length relationship with Jesus Christ disqualified him from genuinely professing and preaching faith in his Savior. He was born in December 5, 1855, to John and Eliza on a small farm in Dundee, Michigan. Although he was raised in a Christian household, He didn't come face to face with Christ until he was 17. After this encounter, he continued to struggle with surrendering his life and trusting in his God. Soon afterwards, in 1874, he began attending a small rural college in Michigan called Hillsdale College, where he studied art. He also studied, taught, and composed music, and throughout his life he would master 13 different instruments. He wrestled with God for five more years, but finally, 
at a church meeting in East Palestine, Ohio, where he was leading the worship, he came to a conclusion and wrote a song. Van Deventer wrote this, For some time I had struggled between developing my talents in the field of art and going into full-time evangelistic work. At last the pivotal hour of my life came, and I surrendered all. A new day was ushered into my life. I became an evangelist and discovered, down deep in my soul, a talent hitherto unknown to me. God had hidden a song in my heart and touched a tender chord. He caused me to sing. The song born in his heart was this song. Of the more than 60 hymns he wrote, this is his best known. In 1896, Winfield Whedon put these words to music. Whedon loved the hymn so much that the words were put on his tombstone after his death in 1908. And as we learn so often in art, collaboration occurs. And here we needed Mr. Whedon to put, well, to put these words and music together. The writer of this song retired to Tampa, Florida, and was a regular professor at hymnology at Florida Bible Institute. One man that was moved by this song, Reverend Billy Graham, who wrote the following account, which was published in Crusade Hymn Stories. Quote, One of the evangelists who influenced my early preaching was also a hymnist who wrote I Surrender All. He was a regular visitor at the Florida Bible Institute in the late 1930s, We students loved this kind, deeply spiritual gentleman, and often gathered in his winter home at Tampa, Florida for an evening of fellowship and singing. And that's the power of song, folks. The music, this music, this one song, this one man, influenced one of the great pastors and spiritual leaders of the 20th century, Billy Graham. Even today, this hymn can be seen and heard in prime time, Here's Oprah Winfrey with her guest, country music star Faith Hill. I heard from my my producers that last night in rehearsal that you really can belt out some gospel, right? Um, And the song you were singing during rehearsal just happens to be one of my favorites, because I'm going to tell you why. Have a seat, y'all. When I wanted to be in the color purple, which is now, it's, it's 20 years ago, I wanted to be in the color purple. Mm-hmm. And I had auditioned for the color purple, and I, two months later I call back and they say, well, no, we have real actresses. We have real actresses <laughs> who've auditioned for this part. And I was so hurt, and I was, you know, very much overweight, and I had been praying and praying and praying and praying to get this role. and. After I heard that other people, real actresses, I thought it's not going to happen and I thought it's because I'm fat and it's because I thought this was the moment for me. So I go to this fat farm, this health 
retreat <laughs> to try to lose 50 pounds in two weeks. So I'm there and I said to God, I said, God, this is too heavy for me. This, this is too much. I've wanted it. I've become obsessed with it. I want this role so much. So I go out on the track and I start praying and I say, I don't think it's going to happen, God. I really don't think it's going to happen for me. But will you take it, take this from me? this obsession, this desire, this thing that I, I feel like I can't go on unless I get this role. And I started singing, I surrender all. Wow. I started praying and singing. I started going around the track singing. I surrender all. And I prayed and I sang and I prayed and I sang and I prayed and I sang and I cried. I prayed and I sang and I cried. And when I finally, you know, there's a difference between praying and then getting mm -hmm. up and taking the prayer with you. Mm -hmm. I prayed until Jesus came down and he took it. I literally surrendered it. I literally surrendered it. I got up. I left the track. I thought, okay, I can, I can, I can move on now. I'm going to be okay. I'm going to be okay. And I started to turn to walk back into um, the, the, the cafeteria naturally. <laughs> and this woman comes running out the door and she says, there's a phone call for you. It's Steven Spielberg. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Wow. And that was really, that was, that, and that moment was when I came to know what mm -hmm. it meant to surrender versus just kind of talking about it. Right. I got on the phone, and Stephen says, I hear you're at a fat farm. And I go, no, sir, it's a health retreat. <laughs> and uh, he said, if you lose a pound, you could lose this part. And so I stopped at the Dairy Queen on the way. <laughs> just to make sure. But since that time, you know, I Surrender All is one of my favorite songs. I didn't know that. Yes, and I heard that last night during rehearsal, you were singing, I Surrender All. I go, that is my song. <laughs> so would you do that for us? Oh, would you do yes, it? Okay. Yes. And this is the power of that song. One African-American Mississippi girl knew it, and a white Mississippi girl knew it. They came from de very different sides of the track in a state torn by race at the time, and they were young. And here is that Mississippi girl singing to the other Mississippi girl, no doubt, both of their favorite songs. Oh, to Jesus I surrender, freely give I will ever love. I will ever love and trust him in his presence daily all to jesus i surrender humbly at his feet i bow worldly pleasures all forsaken take me jesus take
to thee, my blessed Savior, I surrender all. And thanks, Brianna and the students at Hillsdale College for coming up with this beautiful story, the story of a song. Van Deventer, by the way, died in Florida on July 17th, 1939. The song lives on forever. <laughs>